0: to to, to pray for uh, something quite specific over the next uh, possibly few days to the week, which is uh, for the Vassell's house. Um, They perhaps wisely, perhaps foolishly entrusted a few of us to find a house for them, (laughs) Uh, not knowing anything about Birmingham and, you know, going on our advice and, you know, recommendations. And we think we found a place for them and it's actually on Andy and Tammy's old road, which, you know, is great. Um, they have, you know, four girls, obviously, and a lot of those girls are going to be homeschooled as well, so they need a, a reasonable-sized house and things to be able to do the ministry and all those things as well. So we, we think we found a place for them, and they've seen the photos, but, you know, God willing, they're going to arrive, and we're hoping, A, that they like the house, and, the, you know, that would be one thing. Um, and obviously, you know, all the paperwork, given that they're moving from abroad, Chris was telling us the other day, you know, the, the kind of visa checks and all this kind of stuff to be able to make sure that they can actually rent in this country, <laughs> Without having spent any time in the UK living before, you know this is a, a kind of legal nightmare. So please add that to your prayers that we have a house for them by the time they come. And actually, their their stuff I think actually arrives in the UK this week in a container. So you know we're hoping that all that gets sorted pretty soon. Okay, so so uh, let's get on with uh, the sermon. You know the last two weeks. I don't know how uh, your last two weeks have been. Um, for me, Chris <laughs> is uh, laughing. The uh, the last two weeks for me, I, I felt a, a lot of uh, turmoil for a, a number of reasons. Well, you know, obviously a couple of weeks ago, Andy and Tammy uh, left, and that was very you know sad in a sense um, to see them go. And we had the UK referendum, and you know anyone who knows me, I work at the university. I did a lot of work on the referendum. and Let's not get into politics uh, today. But 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 uh, apart from the result, I found the things that were exposed about our country. You know, just deeply saddening, more than just disturbing, deeply saddening. Um, then last weekend, Saturday, we had a, a minor car crash in uh, Lemington. You know, and uh, that was a minor but expensive car crash, which was. You know, we've had various other kind of financial challenges going on in the background, and 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 you know, here's me kind of fessing up. Right, I get worried about things. I, I I get I get worried on the one hand. I'm one of those people. These things kind of they go over and over in my mind if I allow them to. Like in my flesh. This kind of stuff—it just—it plays over in my head, you know. I, you know, I don't—I'm usually so exhausted by the time I go to bed that I don't lie awake at night thinking about it. But I wake up in the morning with a kind of a pit in my stomach sometimes, thinking about this stuff. Um, and, and if I'm being completely honest, you know, I think probably every day over the last 14 days, I probably had that kind of pit in my stomach as I've woken up uh, in the morning. And I also, alongside that, I get worried about stuff, and I also get distracted. And so the sermon is kind of actually, it's a sermon just uh, for me today. Uh, it's all about worry and distraction. You can stay if you want to or you're welcome to leave. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But, but it's funny how God, I think, was preparing me for a whole set of things that have been going on over the last few weeks because I'd started reading some books a little while ago about Jesus and the kingdom. You know, and, and I have one of these... We move forward. I have one of these computers, right, for work. It's a, an Apple, uh, what's this called, a MacBook Air. That I use for work, and it has. If you go on the kind of the apps page, it has you know loaded onto the computer. It has a set of things. If you looked at Rory's, it would have five hundred of the mines. I've got two pages of these things, right? And you know they're fantastic. They're, they're, um, you know I haven't got a clue what ninety percent of them do. But I use my computer for you know I, I work at the university. I use it for writing stuff. I write research. I write lecture slides, that kind of thing. And I use the internet. For me, it's a glorified word processor. I have no idea what those things, most of them do. Some, of them, some, some people said to me, oh, you need to get hold of this thing. To, you know, so I kind of went, oh, great. You know, I'll, let's get hold of that. And you know, downloaded it from the App Store. I haven't got a clue how to use it. But handbrake is on there somewhere. Andy said to me, handbrake is this great... You know, I have not got a clue. Maybe someone can explain to me how to use handbrake some other time. But, but, but I think there's an analogy there for Jesus, right? Because I think, you know, if, if I was this MacBook Air with a user like me, I would be intensely frustrated with someone like me. Like, I would be screaming out at this person every day, I can do incredible things. Why are you such a numpty just using me as a glorified word processor? Why don't you just write it out by hand? If that, you know? It's kind of an insult, right? But I think Jesus is a little bit like that too. Like, sometimes I think he's screaming from the pages of the New Testament, I am so infinitely powerful. I have so much good that I want to do in your lives and through you. Why do you think of me like a word processor? Why do you go for the kind of a simplistic version? I do if these are going to work. There we go. Oh, let's get the whole thing up in there. Jesus, when he's talking in Luke 10, he says the following. He says, how privileged you are to see what you have seen. Many a prophet and king of old has longed for these days. To see and hear what you have seen and heard. Many famous people, thinkers and rulers, would have given anything to have your insights, but they never got the chance. You know, Jesus is talking to his disciples, his apostles, his closest group of friends, and he's trying to get across them. Don't miss it. Don't miss what you're a part of. Many prophets and kings of old, and, and in Jesus' context, he's talking about you know, Old Testament prophets and kings. People who are you know, from the Jewish faith and religion. But I think the parallel is, for us, there are a lot of people throughout history who would have longed to see and to be part of what we are a part of. And sometimes I think we get so kind of used to it that we can forget it. So what I want to do, and, and, and uh, you know, I don't want to make this a history or a philosophy lesson... Um, I have a degree in history, and I lecture in kind of politics, business, and philosophy. Um, but this is not meant to be either of those two things. But what I want to do very quickly is go through some of, and I'll try and keep track of time so we don't spend ages on this because I want to get to Jesus—that's the most important part, right? But some of the most influential people in history—we'll do five if we can do them very quickly. Okay. So one of the most influential philosophers in history, most people would say was this guy, Confucius, a Chinese philosopher. He was born in about 551 BC, most people would say. And it was a time of great, if you like, moral decline in China. They were really searching for a way to kind of, you know, uh, an ideology or a kind of a way to organize society. And, and and this guy really fitted with the particular mood of the time. Basically, you know, his philosophy went on to become the kind of the imperial philosophy of China I mean actually it's still for anyone from China now will say it still shapes a lot of Chinese culture to this day. But really what it was about was a kind of an ideal society on earth built around principles of, of empathy and kindness. Like for Confucius there was no real thought of an afterlife of a heaven or a hell or any kind of judgment or anything like that. It was it was about how do we live an organized society now. He was a great believer in educating the you know lower classes of people, all these kind of things. Like, did a lot of good for China, based basically on this kind of ideal society on Earth. Second guy, we're going through high speed, because, you know, like I said, this is not meant to be a history or philosophy lesson. Plato. Plato, probably, actually, I mean, actually, if, if you... Some of this stuff will make sense for you know, the, the kind of turns that we've taken in Christianity over time. Because Christianity from about the 2nd and 3rd century onward became quite influenced by Plato's thinking. And I'll show you why in a second or two. But a Greek philosopher born in about 427 BC... One of his big ideas was that the body, this kind of physical body... ...was a prison for the soul. Like he really believed in the kind of separate or separation of body and spirit or body and soul... And he really believed that when we die, our soul is the thing that our body, our physical body, dies and decays in the ground. But our soul is the thing that separates. Now, you might, if you're familiar with the New Testament, be thinking, "Oh, yeah, that sounds familiar." That's kind of what you know. Maybe like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians four seventeen, for example. You know, is that the kind of actually the New Testament teaches something quite different about a resurrection body that we have? You know, we should think about that maybe another time. But but for Plato, his was all about the immortality of the soul. He believed that we had actually existed in heaven, if you like, somehow, or some kind of heavenly place, before we were born on earth. It's a little bit like, I suppose, like reincarnation or something like that. That we had existed in eternity somehow. Because his his kind of analogy was, well, we we look at things on earth, and we we know that there's imperfection. We see imperfection all around us. How, How could we know what imperfection looks like unless we had seen perfection somehow? So his idea was, well, for that to be true, we must have existed before we we lived in these bodies. So we existed in some kind of eternity, we die, we live and die, and then our soul goes back or on to that kind of eternal place again. But the funny thing is that, you know, given these kind of great musings and some very interesting kind of thoughts, he had very little to say about how we actually live on earth. He emphasised, you know, gaining understanding and wisdom it was all about, you know, learning and contemplating and thinking about life and, and our purpose and meaning for being here. But very little of practical teaching. In fact, in most of his writings, he, he actually refuses to put his own kind of character's voice in there. It's, it's very much a kind of a, don't look at me, don't, don't think about my kind of role in this. Just, just, let's contemplate our meaning and existence and all these kind of things. You know, what I would say from looking at, quickly at two philosophers. Can I move forward? Mamba, can you move forward on a slide? I'll tell you what the next slide's going to say while it's coming up. The philosophers, I would say, generally, had some very interesting ideas. You know, there's some very interesting work done by contemporary philosophers about, you know, how the world exists and how we shape the world and all these kind of things. Studied by, you know, a lot of different courses and university degrees and things now. But I would say one of the main things that philosophers give us is many ideas and a whole lot of questions, but not an awful lot of answers. Okay, I'll move on to the next guy and we'll see where we come to. So in terms of philosophers, let's move them aside for a second or two. Great kings of history. I know we have a few Greek people here today. Oh, here you go. Plato. Forget praying for the Vassell's house. Pray for the PowerPoint to work. Sorry, Forrest, if you're listening. Okay, forget it, don't worry. Alexander the Great. One of the greatest military leaders who ever lived. Right, born in about 356 BC, he was a great military general and leader. He was a Greek, a Macedonian leader. So we're thinking now, before, you know, before Romans, before Jesus comes along, this great military leader. He led great military campaigns. In fact, commonly considered to be one of the greatest military leaders of all history. Which is strange, given that he died in his mid-30s. right? But he was a very ambitious guy. He had these victories in Persia, uh, Egypt, India. Plutarch, a later historian, would call him uh, a son of the gods. You know, Alexander wasn't known for being a humble guy himself. He preferred to think of himself, the title he gave himself was Lord of All. (laughs) Wow. Which is interesting. When you think about the things that Jesus is saying, the context, right? There are these people who have been before Jesus who called themselves, you know, Lord of All. And we'll come to Caesar in a minute or two. But basically, Alexander's big problem for him was, was that Macedonia was never enough. Macedonia, Greece was, was never enough. He always wanted to push the boundaries further, extend his kingdom. You know, the sad truth is that after he died, the legacy of the Greek empire was basically... I mean, you know, there's a whole number of things. When you read New Testament Greek, the reason we're reading New Testament Greek as the modern day, as the contemporary English language, if you like, at the time, the language that everyone spoke, was because of people like Alexander. Right? But basically within 300 years his entire kind of territory and kingdom had been taken over by the Romans. He'd lost the whole thing. you know a lot of people say looking back at his life that he was a man with a god complex. What about Caesar? He would have been the next slide would have that there just a picture Caesar there. you've seen a picture of Caesar right you know the Ides of March and A2 you know, Brute and all that kind of stuff. So Caesar was born in about 100 BC. And he started, a little known to a lot of people, he started, I didn't know this about Caesar, he started his life actually as a philosopher. He was like a you know a great public speaker and things. In about 60 BC, he was made into a governor. And he, again, was one of these guys who really pushed the boundaries of the Roman Empire. So he led conc- uh, conquests into France, Spain, uh, Britain, Germany. He conquered, so the record says, 800 cities. 800 cities were conquered by Caesar. He placed, during his military campaigns, over 1 million people in slavery. And during those same military campaigns, 3 million people died. You know, again, one of these guys not particularly known for being humble. Uh, In his mid-50s, he led an army basically on Rome, and he claimed, you know, control, took control of Rome, uh, and declared himself to be a permanent dictator until death. He didn't like the title of king. He didn't want to be called, you know, King Julius, whatever. He he, he basically said, of himself, I am the Republic. You know, wow, nice uh, guy to sit at a dinner table with. He claimed to be, this was another title, he gave himself an invincible God. You know, when you read back in the books of Daniel, in the Old Testament, the things you see, Nebuchadnezzar and others, and, and they build these great statues of themselves. I mean, you've got to have a bit of an ego, to be honest, to build a statue of yourself and have people kind of bow down to worship you while you're alive. You know, if they do that after you're dead... Right, you know, you can't be blamed for that. But if you want people to worship you as a god, I mean, like the pharaohs, they thought them- themselves as man gods. You know, Caesar was another one, unfortunately, of those guys. Hugely selfishly ambitious, massive conquests, but very selfishly ambitious, driven by his own glory. And in 44 BC, was assassinated by a group called the Liberators. The next picture that you can see <laughs> would have been Napoleon Bonaparte. He's the last one we'll come to. Come on now, you can do it. There would have been a nice picture of Napoleon sitting here on a horse, right? So Napoleon, we know Napoleon, pushing forward a little bit. He gained, uh, you know, most of continental Europe. I know we've got some French people. We have uh, uh, Camille staying with us uh, from France for a few weeks now. You know, again, great military leader. Fantastic military leader. Again, one of those people who really reinvented how you do military conquests. Uh, developed the use of artillery in a particular way. He wanted to colonise Africa. He also wanted to colonise and conquer Syria. You know, known for being ruthless. There was two thousand soldiers on one of these campaigns who were actually trying to surrender, and his decision was let's slaughter them. Right? Men who were actually trying to surrender, a bit like Caesar before him. In 1799, he led troops to Paris, right, and t- took control of Paris, and again, you know, uh, you know, tried to. Push the boundaries of the French Empire, if you like, from within Paris. But again, his his ambition, his ambition for his own glory was his downfall. You know, basically one of those uh, uh, big mistakes that he made was when he tried to then conquer Russia. If you've ever seen a map of the world, that wouldn't have been one of the slides, but if you've ever seen a map of the world trying to conquer Russia, is just a big mistake. I mean, Hitler, right, you know, big mistake that Hitler made, and same for Napoleon he tried to conquer Russia, 600,000 of his men died on this attempt to conquer Russia you've got to be pretty, again, full of yourself to be willing to sacrifice 600,000 of your own men, they died of starvation they died in the long winter you know, some of them deserted, probably you know, best decision But, but, but here's a guy who you know, a greedy ruler if you like, who lost in the end because he just couldn't stop kept wanting to take more and more So if we were thinking about those guys, I think that the the lesson from the philosophers is they were wise men who had some very interesting questions, but not an awful lot of answers about how to live in this life. And kings, you may well have followed one of these kings if you were there at the time, but but these were greedy men. They were bent on their own glory and their own ambition. So let's go to Jesus, and we have nothing? I have it on my thing. Do you want to... But then... Have you got a cord that will come across here? Is it long enough? No, you don't have the extension. Oh, is it lo- you are loading it back up again. Okay, as long as we get there for the video later. There we go. Let me ask you a question. What gospel... Right, here's where we get to the, the important part, right? Forget everything that's gone before for the moment. This is a deep question, right? Th- think about this one for a second. What gospel did Jesus preach? what gospel did jesus preach i'm not going to go around and take questions because answers will be here for, for for hours but what gospel did jesus preach i ask that because i've been reading this book over the last few months to andy Boachie. if you ever want to know good books to read andy Boachie has a library the size of this you know this room uh, if you know andy Bocci, he was minister in manchester for a while did his phd in theology and you know great great to ping him an email and ask him for recommendations he recommended this book a while ago and it really it answered a question that I've been thinking about for, for a number of years, because there was a famous um, uh, American preacher, well known American evangelist, not in our church, but but you know kind of all, you know, known worldwide, who was asked that question, you know, what gospel did Jesus preach? And he said Jesus didn't pre-, like they, you're straight up. He said Jesus didn't preach the gospel. He couldn't because the gospel only comes really after Jesus died and is resurrected. The gospel is all about repentance, baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Paul preached the gospel. The New Testament church preached the gospel, but Jesus couldn't because he hadn't died and been resurrected yet. Here's a great Bible study to do. We won't spend the whole time doing this today, but, but go through and look at what Jesus' gospel was. Mark 1 starts off by saying, Jesus went out and he preached the gospel. right? So, so, so have a look through the gospels, the four gospels, and see what message Jesus preached. If he didn't go around teaching people you know, like repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins, which we do believe, right? Don't get me wrong, we do believe that. That is right. But what gospel did Jesus preach? Jesus actually preached the King Jesus gospel, like if you want to put it no other way, that he was the fulfillment of everything that had been written about him throughout the Old Testament, all the prophecies, and and he claimed the authority that these other guys wished they could have claimed. He claimed that for himself. He claimed it in a way that people like Moses and Elijah never would have dreamed or dared doing. You could call it the King Jesus Gospel. That's the book that uh, Andy recommended that I read. It... <laughs> okay. Shall I just carry on? Yes. Okay, I'll carry on. Go on. You know, sometimes I think we're so familiar with things, like we see them so often that we don't stop to marvel at them. You ever notice that? Like I went out into Highbury Park this morning and then. Have you ever stopped. I'm going to sound a bit strange saying this. Have you ever stopped to stare at trees? <laughs> have you ever stopped to stare at trees? There were a few people this morning who were, like, you know, kind of walking past with their dogs. I always get this kind of. And I, and I was staring at these trees, kind of praying, and, you know, and there's people come kind of walking past me with their dogs and. A guy kind of talking to himself, staring at trees, just, it does look a little strange, I have to be honest, you know, so I was half concerned the police were going to be on their way, but, you know, but, but, but I was, for the first time in a long time, you know, I, I stared at the trees, I don't know what it was this morning, but, but they really amazed me, you know, the bark on the trees, and, and I've read things before about how much water on a daily basis goes through these trees, is funneled into them. Right, how many leaves each year is on the largest trees? Up to several million leaves. How many birds in the lifetime of these trees will, will form their nests in these trees? Trees are amazing. But the point is not really about trees. It's that we walk past things sometimes that God has created all around us. And we get so used to them. Sometimes we, we forget to kind of stop and go... Let me just take a minute. You know, if I was David Bruce right now, that's probably, you know, like, I can hear him saying something like that. We have to sometimes, I think, slow down and stop and think. Let me ask you another question that maybe you've never thought of. Maybe you have. Maybe you're, you know, maybe you're way up on What was the transfiguration in the Bible about? If you're familiar, familiar with the New Testament, what was the transfiguration actually about? Do you realize, for example, that the transfiguration, a lot of scholars say it was actually as important as the resurrection. As important as Jesus' baptism. I have read through the transfiguration many times and kind of gone, great, okay, let's move on. You know, Luke 10, here we go. I want to stop for a minute today and, and, and have a look a little bit at that. So if you have a Bible, now is the time to open your Bible. I'm sorry it's taken us a, a little while to get there, but we'll be in the Bible from now on. Hey, one but you oh, uh, let's go there for right, so'll we'll, we'll go there. you can go to Luke 9, that's fine. Luke 8:25 begins this section of Luke's gospel, and, it, and you might call it the "Who is this section? It's the part where Jesus is on the boat with the disciples. You know there's the storms, etc. Jesus calms the water and they start to ask this question in Luke 8:25, "Who is this?" That is able to calm the storms. We'll pick it up in Luke 9. In verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on. And he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared. And still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back. But Herod said, I beheaded John. John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Herod was the king of the time, right? And and he hears about the things that Jesus is doing. And he starts to ask this question. Who is this guy? You know, and and so, you know, what's the consensus view? Well, some people say he's John the Baptist. And other people say he's Elijah. Other people say, well, he's one of the great prophets of old. Who is this guy? It's interesting in and of itself that when people looked at Jesus... The people that they thought, you know, that these were radical men. Right, John the Baptist was a guy who ate locusts and honey and lived, you know, wearing a lot, you know, I mean, this was like camel skin and a sack, you know, these are rough living guys. Elijah probably smelled, I mean, he offended an awful lot of people. He called down fire on prophets, 50 at a time. These were radical men, and when they looked at Jesus, they said, we think he's, he's a bit like these guys. Which was interesting in and of itself, but but Herod starts to ask this question: Who is this? And I think it's a question that we really need to regularly ask ourselves and deepen our understanding of. I remember studying the Bible when, when Kevin Mott studied the Bible with me back in 1998 to become a Christian, and and he asked me this question, and he said, you know, what is the Bible? What do you think the Bible is? And Without without skipping a beat, I gave this kind of like off the top of my tongue. You know, I'd been raised in a church, and I said, "Oh, the Bible is the word of God." Where did that come from? I had no idea what that meant. I had been taught that growing up. Oh, yeah, the Bible's the word of God. Like, actually, I don't think I really started to understand. I started to understand that until a couple of years ago. What do we mean that the Bible is the word of God? If I asked you who is Jesus, I'm sure you have the kind of the textbook answers. Jesus is the son of God and he, you know, but, but who is this? Are we on a, you know, regular basis deepening our understanding of Jesus? Luke nine ten to 17, will paraphrase, is when Jesus then goes out, Luke says he goes out to a deserted place. And these crowds come and Luke says that there were 5,000 men who came to hear Jesus speak. How many people in total? 8,000, 9,000, 10,000 people came to sit on this plane and listen to Jesus speak. They came hungry, right? And Jesus, at the end, he gathers from the crowd five loaves and two fish, and he prays for them. And then he distributes them, and everyone is fed, you know, filled. Let me ask you another question. Which Old Testament leaders were known for you know, miraculous or feeding miracles. Moses, Elijah, anyone else? So Moses, Moses absolutely led the people out of the Exodus. Right, led people out of Egypt, and and, and God delivered manna and quail from heaven for them on a daily basis. Uh, uh, Elijah, for sure, absolutely at the Kidron Valley, he himself was fed by ravens and food, and you know, uh, Elisha as well. Was known for feeding miracles. So these, so you know, in the back of your mind, Luke's trying to get us to think. You know, obviously this happened, sure, but but he's the way he's setting this up just after Herod's question, "Who is this?" He's trying to get people, to the readers, to think, "Oh yeah, it's just like Elijah, Elisha, Moses, the people that we've just talked about." Luke nine eighteen. Let's read that. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? There's the question again. They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of old has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Now, there's the question again, and if you know what comes next, and we won't focus on that bit for now, but but if you know what comes next, you know that Peter was one of those guys. He had the textbook answer. Yeah, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. But Jesus, in the very next section after that, explains to him, you know the right answer, but you don't understand what that really means. You know, I think I'm guilty of that so often. You know, reading through these books over the last few months is just reminding me again, man, I go for the, the, the word processor version of Jesus so easily yeah Jesus you know thanks for forgiving my sins and I take the bread and wine and those things are important don't get me wrong but is that it you know I read a book a while ago and it said that it's like that Jesus becomes the, the you know the head of the sin management gospel like we sin and then we take the bread and the wine and we pray for forgiveness or something like that and then Jesus forgives us miraculously and then we kind of carry on with our lives you know but Jesus wants to be so much more so what I want us to focus on briefly now is Luke 928. To 36. About eight days after Jesus said this. He took Peter, John and James with him. And went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying. The appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah. There they are again. Appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to the master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, whom I've chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So Jesus is with his three closest friends here, and he takes them up onto a mountain. And it says... But there's you know, on this mountain there's dazzling light and there's a cloud that descends on the mountain. The word there in Greek, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so please forgive me if I get this wrong, is something like exastropon, right? Which, depending on which version of the the NIV you have, if you've got the NIV, the NIV is the only translation that translates that as, as lightning. And the the you know, so I checked this to make sure because some of the other versions don't have that. Most versions will say something like he gleamed or dazzled or something like that. But the most recent NIV version has that word as as light, like a flash of lightning. So I was like, well, is that the NIV playing a game with us or not? And so I checked. And that's the only time in the New Testament that word exastrepton is used. And it is actually like a flash of lightning. That's what that word actually means. It's the only... Luke is the only person in the New Testament who uses... and, And so he's right in saying Jesus flashed like lightning. Let me ask you another question again. And you'll see, you know, the pattern here. Which Old Testament figures went up onto a mountain... And there was lightning. And there was a cloud... ...that descended upon that mountain. It's Moses... ...and it's Elijah again. There's three things I think Luke's trying to tell us right here. Number one... ...Moses and Elijah went up onto mountains... ...who did they go up on the mountains to meet? They went to meet God. Right, in Exodus 19, Exodus 24 through to 31... ...and in Exodus 33... and then in, for, ...that's for Moses... ...and then in 1 Kings 19 with Elijah... ...both of those characters go up onto a mountain to meet God the cloud descends the mountain shakes there's fire there's lightning they go up on the mountain to meet God and this time Moses and Elijah go up onto the mountain and who do they meet? Jesus Luke's trying to tell us something he's trying to say Jesus is God people are asking these questions about Jesus you know are you like Moses? are you like Elijah? are you John the Baptist? resurrected? and Luke is trying to say no he is far, far, far greater than any of them. Amen. Number two, in the middle of this, they have this, what are they talking about? Chit-chatting about the tennis, whether Andy Murray won. No, it says they're talking about his departure. The word they're actually in Greek is exodus. They're talking about his exodus. They're talking about Jesus' exodus. At the time for the Jewish people there was this deep longing, and, and, and you know, we could spend hours, we could have an entire sermon series about what that was about, but, but there was this expectation and longing. A little bit like you know, you remember if you remember back, if you've read the Old Testament in Egypt when the people it says that they groaned, they felt the shackles and the burdens of you know, fifteen hundred years before of being enslaved in Egypt, and they wanted their freedom. And most writers say, that's a little bit like what the people were feeling there in in Israel now. They weren't captives in a foreign land, they were captives in their own land. There was this deep longing for, for, for freedom, for liberation. Luke is trying to say, secondly, when Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah about his exodus, this deep longing for freedom that the people have, that we all have, like John 8, we are all, if we sin, we are captives to sin. We all have that longing for liberation and freedom. Jesus is the answer. He is the freedom that we're looking for. And the third thing is really, it's so obvious in a sense, we, uh, you know, we miss it. Someone pointed this out to me years ago, and i would never noticed it before. But it says right at the end, so the cloud descends on them. And at the end, they look up. And the cloud has gone. And who is the only one left Standing. Jesus. Jesus. See, because Moses and Elijah, they represented the law and the prophets. Right? That, that, you know, for those familiar with the Old Testament, that, that's that's all of the important stuff in the Old Testament. The Jews considered the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah, was the, that was the whole package. And so Luke is trying to tell us something. At the end, as the cloud lifts, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets are gone. And there's a new covenant. You know, what was, what was the original? What was Moses' first trip to the mountain all about? It was the beginning of the first covenant. It was where the law was handed out on, on you know tablets. That was it. What's this? This is the beginning of a new covenant. The law and the prophets have now been surpassed or completed by Jesus. You know, the gospel message is really simply this, that there is no one greater than jesus and it's littered throughout the gospels and and you know i, I know we know that as a church but to, to to dig deep to understand the richness of that message i think is very powerful as i said familiarity breeds some people say familiarity breeds contempt i think familiarity breeds boredom you know you know it, it breeds we, we get stale whatever the staleness you know we, we get we get bored. We lose our sense of awe. I've got two very quick things to close with then. How do we apply this? What, what what might that mean? Well, two quick things then. Number one, don't worry. And number two, stay focused. Jesus in Matthew six thirty-three, you know, his proclamation of his kingdom, if you like, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said it's time to stop vexing with questions like Where shall we eat tonight? That is a good question, actually. I don't know where we have my family arriving tonight. I'm not sure where we are eating. Or have we ordered the right wine to go with the meal? Or is this dress suitable for this occasion? Less appropriate for the brothers, obviously, unless you're that way inclined. There we go. Um, People are bothered by such questions don't understand God yet. God loves you and knows what's best for you. Centre your mind on God's new world. Use all your energy to help build it. Two quick points. You know, if you're going through a struggling time and and you walk up to someone, and you say, "Man, you know, I'm I'm finding it really tough, you know, recently." You know, and you you know you kind of bare your soul to someone, and they say to you, "Don't worry, it'll be all right." And they kind of walk off. I don't know about you. That's the point at which I usually want to give someone a you know a bit of a, a slap around the face or something like that. It's not very helpful. I appreciate the kind of the comforting words, but it's a bit like you know be warm and well-fed, thanks, great, you know, um, not, not all that helpful, but if someone walks up to you and says, you know, and, and you're telling them, and they say, don't worry, there is someone who is stronger and greater than you, who cares for you, who is able to handle your burdens, that means a lot, right, I want to show you a quick clip if it'll work, on, But let's try this, you may have seen this before, I thought this was hilarious, um, In China, they built this huge glass bridge, right? You know, for people to walk across this canyon and it kind of goes round the mountain and things... to be honest that would probably be me to be honest (laughs) Actually, because people were so nervous about it, some people. I think, you know, to be honest, I probably would have been. It's got to be quite unnerving looking down and seeing nothing but a, whatever. I think it was 500 foot drop or something. So they got a guy with a, a sledgehammer to come and to hammer the thing to show people. Look, you know, you can. It, you notice it did actually shatter. You know, which is I don't know if you draw comfort from that or not, but but it did. But it's it's so thick. The panel is so thick that you know. I think you could walk across it. You know, you'd be all right. But 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 you know. Isn't it funny that we can be a little bit like that sometimes with the gospel, right? But I, I, I don't know about you, I, I'm a warrior. Someone said to me once, you know, that's practical atheism, right? In my flesh, if I don't pray about this stuff, I am a warrior. My wife will say I'm slightly OCD about things, I think probably slightly is a bit of an understatement. Like, I, I like things in order, I like knowing, you know, I like patterns and rules and... You know, I like structure for things, plans, I plan everything, you know, to the T, you know, and I like that kind of stuff. You know, things change and the bridge starts to, you know. I, I, my tendency is to worry about these kind of things. Uh, I'll give you a funny example. So, 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 last ex- last week we had this minor car crash in a car park in uh, Leamington, and then Friday, uh, Friday morning? Yeah, Friday morning. A Thursday night, right, the uh, uh, water in our area, in the Selly Oak area, they had a burst water mate. And, you know, the water... I didn't know that at the time. The water from our tap starts coming out green, and then the pressure just drops dramatically, right? I used to work doing building work for a number of years and things, and, and leaking pipes and all that kind of stuff is just one of the things that I've had experience of and I hate, right? So my mind starts going off thinking, okay, so I check around the house to make sure there's no leaking pipes there, and, you know, okay, right? No, it's definitely not inside, so, you know, that's that's good. You know, I don't like ceilings coming down. I've had that before, right? Okay, so where is it? And I'm thinking, okay, it's, well, you know oh boy no, I, and then, I, then I start to catastrophize right? I'm thinking I know what it is because I got one of those Richard um, uh, 7 Trent you know, insurance policy things for your water oh if it goes on your if it goes on your property if the water mains pipe goes we'll charge you 400 pounds to dig up your drive and replace this and so I'm starting to think right we just had this car crash and our oven's broken down and da 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 and now we're going to have to pay 400 pounds to dig up our drive and I've just laid the drive and I, I do not need this right now this is what's going on in my head right on Thursday night and I went to bed, I was kind of like, hey, God, do you know what? This is just, I've got too much other stuff to think about. I you know, just have to leave this with you. Woke up in the morning, and, and then Raquel actually got a text from Asia School saying, oh, no, there's been a water mains thing. I actually went to bed at peace, you know, I kind of thought, amen. You know, I didn't wake up, that was one of the mornings. I didn't wake up with a, a pit in my stomach, but anyway, I think that's more because I forgot rather than, you know, great faithfulness. But I went to bed and woke up in the morning, and Raquel got this text from Asia School saying, oh, yeah, the water mains broken, everyone in the neighborhood is affected. And my heart, I just remember this relief, like, wow, I'm so glad. You know, it wasn't just our problem, and I wasn't going to be footing the cost. But but, but I really have to, I, I struggle with this stuff, right? I'm a warrior, you know, this is, this is my kind of thing too. My way of dealing with that is, you know, I go to God and I pray. And I kind of, I, here's me talking to myself again, but I imagine God's voice. I apply, Mark, Matthew 6:33, and that passage, I pray through regularly. And I pray from God's perspective, God's saying to me, stop worrying. It's a command. You know, it's a command. I, 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 I denied that fact for a while. It is a command. Now, God is not saying be negligent with stuff. You know, if you're a student, he's not saying be negligent with your coursework. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying be negligent with your finances either. But he is saying stop worrying about it. But there's a second part to that as well. He says, Seek first my kingdom. So don't worry, but stay focused. And and I've always held to that promise. There have been a lot of times in our life where we, you know I've faced choices about things. I trust what God says there. Dude, I've turned down jobs, well, I've offered jobs, you know, when we were living in Manchester, offered jobs all over the Northwest, and had a temporary contract in Manchester and thought, man, you know, this is we've got two kids and this is hard, you know, what am I going to do? And I, I trust this, that if we seek first the kingdom, God will take care. Right? And I have never, you know, to this day, I have never seen him let me down. Right? That is a promise. But the promise is seek first my kingdom. You know, our challenge, I think, a lot of the time is to, you know, there are two kingdoms in our lives. One is our own. It's haggai, it's you know we want to build our own panelled houses. We we got all this stuff that we wanna sorry, this is not meant for Rory and Ruthie rebuilding their house now. This is not, it's not. But but there's this stuff in our life that is a priority for us that we do need to be diligent with. And then there's our first priority, which is meant to be God's kingdom. You know, the simple analogy really is we, we've got to follow Jesus. And I want, you know, ask yourself the question as you go into this week. If you want a practical application, ask yourself the question this week. What did Jesus do with his life? When, when John the Baptist came and sent people to him, Jesus said, look around you. He said, the sick are healed, the lame walk, and the good news is preached. Luke 19, uh, Luke 10 verse 19, he says, for the Son of Man came... 19.10, said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That, what did Jesus, when he was asked about his mission, the Son of Man came to seek... And to save what was lost. In the beginning of Mark's gospel, he says, "I must go to other places to preach the gospel, for that is why I came." Right. If you look at Jesus, like I think there are three simple things that he did, and it's not rocket science. And I don't know about you, like my mind when we see a change of leadership and things, part of me kind of goes, "Oh, you know, has the gospel changed? Has the church changed? What's the, you know, what are we doing? What what is, what is Christianity about?" Like I go through that kind of, you know, let's just reassess and think, we're meant to be following Jesus. Nothing changes. It'll be great to have the Veselles here. I'm fired up. We've been talking with them with them on Skype over the last few months. They're a phenomenal couple. We are very blessed to have them coming. We love Andy and Tammy deeply, but they're a phenomenal couple. But Jesus' life was about preaching the kingdom, helping the poor, and strengthening the disciples. Like if you want a simple application for this week, find a slot each you know, each week to do those three things. Find something you can do to preach the gospel, to open your home, to be hospitable to someone. To have a coffee with a work colleague or something, or to share the gospel with someone. Find a way to help the poor. And find a way to strengthen other disciples. As I said at the beginning, you know, I think Jesus is a little bit like a high-tech computer. Right, that does, is a... Jing might appreciate this being from China. This is the one of the world's most high-tech computers in China, on the top left-hand corner. You know, the analogy, this is a bit like Jesus. Jesus is not like this one. You know, I remember playing on one of these things back in the 1980s. Jesus is the high-tech computer. He wants to do incredible things through the church, through our lives. Let's not treat him like the bottom one. Amen. Amen. Amen.